children's church is dismissed at this time. K through five goes right out those doors over there with Miss Val. And over here we have junior hires with Tony. While they are exiting, I want to encourage you, if you brought your Bibles, to turn to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, that will be the text of this morning's message. And, and as they're leaving and you're turning there, I have uh, two quick announcements to make. One is that um, maybe you heard, maybe you didn't hear, depending on whether you get our newsletter, but we were scheduled to have a meeting this evening, and that meeting has been postponed to uh, an unspecified time in the future, and I wanted to let you know that. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that um, we have had, um, as some of you know, some rather heavy things unfold um, upon our church in the last week and a half, and um, that has taken quite a bit of time um, in conjunction with the fact we have some key leaders that are going to be missing this evening. And uh, there are other things that are in process that we want to bring to the congregation, and rather than have multiple meetings, we're just going to kind of roll it into one. So for that, those reasons, we are going to postpone. So there will be no meeting tonight. Um, and with that said, if you, if you have questions about different things that you hear about, I just want to encourage you to, to have conversations with people who can answer your questions. Myself, um, the elders, the pastors, and um, some of the best things to do is to communicate. So uh, with that's the first thing. The second thing is it struck me this morning, uh, you know, when my bed was shaking, <laughs> is I was thinking to myself, I, I quickly t pulled open my iPad, and I was like, well, where did it epicenter, and, you know, did, is San Francisco still standing, that kind of stuff, and, and, um, and uh, uh, I was reading that um, the chance of an aftershock in the next seven days is 54%, all right? So, if in the event there is a strong aftershock in the next 35 minutes, uh, and it's a, a sustained one, I just want to encourage you to... Uh, exit the building calmly and I am going to accept that as God's final word on this morning's sermon all right all right let me um, offer um, us this time to the Lord in prayer father in heaven we thank you that you are powerful your word comes to my mind God is our refuge and strength a very help present help in the time of trouble Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Father, I pray that we in this room would know that. We would know that you are the God of storm, the God of a quaking earth, the God of the past, the present, and the future. Lord, we want to find our confidence our cornerstone, our foundation in you so that we can be people who live without fear because we trust in an awesome and loving and powerful, faithful, providential God. Lord, I pray that you would have your way this morning in our hearts. I pray that your spirit would speak through your word in a way that humbles us, convicts us, gives us hope, and shows us how gracious and loving you are, how personal you are to us. You don't just know us as a group. You know us by name. And so I pray that you would accompany this teaching of your word. I pray that you would accompany the hearing of your word. I pray that you would accompany the application of your word. In the name of Jesus, our high king, our priest and coming king, um, in his name we pray.
One of the big mistakes that I see um, in the Christian life, and I've made uh, many of my own, are when Christian people see a good thing and they go after that good thing in a wrong way. There are a lot of good things in life, uh, you all know that, and the temptation for us is to go after that thing in the wrong way, and it almost always ends in, in misery. For example, a couple examples here to get your mind moving in the direction that, that this text is going. I have known a number, number of young women over the years who have uh, hoped in their college years to find Mr. Wonderful, to find the companion, to find that person that would, so to speak, complete them. Only to graduate college and realize that they never met that person, and so they find themselves lonely, and, and they know from what God has revealed in his truth because he loved us that we need to be very careful who we wed ourselves to, to wed ourselves to someone who, who loves Jesus uh, above all else. And it's, it's easy in those, those times to go after that good thing called marriage or, or, or companionship in the wrong way. And to compromise what you know to be true and go after it, which makes that thing you're going after, in essence, an idol. And it shows a complete distrust in the faithfulness, power, and goodness of God, too, if it so happens to be his will to bring that person to you. Or I know a number of young men who desire, and this is pretty much true of all people, but a young person who, who wants to be accepted. And who doesn't want to be accepted? I, that's not a bad thing to want to be accepted. We're communal beings. So we're, we're meant to have friendships, relate to each other, and, and acceptance is a good thing. But if we go after acceptance and the experience of acceptance by people in the wrong way and compromise what we know God has revealed in his love to us in his word, well, then we are making that acceptance an idol. We're sh taking a shortcut, and in the end, I believe it, it leads to, to misery in one's life. It's a short-circuiting of things or a, a businessman who wants to uh, grow his business it's not a bad thing a growing business benefits employees it benefits a community it's a good thing but if in order to get that good thing he compromises his integrity along the way and ends up you know making shortcuts well then that thing the growing of his business has become an idol and he has lacked the trust in the Lord who, if it should so be his will, will grow his business. And when that happens, when we go after a good thing in a way that is wrong, it makes that an idol and shows to us we're not in that moment for that thing trusting the Lord. And that's what's in this particular story, Genesis chapter 16. It's a rather remarkable story. Even as I was I was. Studying it and writing, uh, Friday morning I was writing up at my parents' place because I uh, had to lay to rest an old friend. And, um, and I was just, my heart was filled with both conviction and also a sense of wonder um, at human failure and God's grace. Right, there is in this passage, and out of this passage is going to come a name of God, obviously. There is this brokenness and there is this beauty. There is a failure of faith, and there is a display of divine grace in this passage here that I hope will both be a warning to us not to do, go after the good thing in the wrong way, um, and also something that would draw us in and fill us with a sense of just, wow, how gracious the Lord is. Well, the story is, is about Abraham and, and Sarah, and, and you need to know a little bit of the backstory in order for you to understand this particular passage. Um, 
Abraham and Sarah have been promised a good thing. That good thing is a, a son. God said, I will, I will give you a son. Most of us don't have those kinds of uh, explicit promises made to us by God. Um, but they did. God said, I'm going to bring you a son. A lot of people, couples, desire children. It's a natural desire. And Sarah wants a son. God promised a son. Only problem is, as you may know, in this particular chapter, by the time you get here, she's an elderly woman and her womb is closed. And so she thinks it to be an impossibility for her to have a child. In addition to the fact, time has gone by. Chapter 16, verse 3 tells us that 10 years had gone by since, um, since they had entered the land. So time was ticking by another decade, still no child. So what we find in this chapter is them reaching for this good thing, a son, promised by God, reaching for this good thing in a wrong way that makes the son an idol and shows a complete distrust in the faithfulness, goodness, power, and love of God. That's this chapter. This patriarchal couple, Abraham and Sarah. I mean, the father and matriarch of the people of Israel. The chosen people. Abraham is a friend of God. He's a man of faith. He's already demonstrated his faith back in chapter 12 of Genesis. And so he's a man of stature, a man who's renowned in terms of his belief. Only here, everything comes apart because they reach for a good thing in the wrong way. Now, before I read this, um, the first part of this, I, I think it's worth noting that the way in which chapter 16 is cast is it is cast in the same light, the same basic structure as Genesis 3. Now, Genesis 3, as you well know, is the, the chapter that records the great fall of man. Adam and Eve reaching for the fruit, so forth. That is to say, chapter 16 is cast in the same light as Genesis chapter 3, and I think the intent of that is to say that Abraham and Sarah make a massive mistake here. Just to clue you into why I conclude that is this. You do a comparison of Genesis 3 and Genesis 16, and this is, again, just to underscore the fact that this is a major screw-up. Remember Genesis 3, the woman speaks, and the woman said to. Fast forward to Genesis 16, you find Sarah. And Sarah said to. Back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam listened to Eve when he shouldn't have. Chapter 16, verse 2, Abraham listens to Sarah. Back to Genesis 3, Eve took of its fruits. Genesis 16, Sarah took Hagar, the slave girl. Back to Genesis 3, Eve gave some to her husband. Genesis 16, 3, Sarah gave her to Abraham. Chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord sought Adam and Eve after they had sinned. In chapter 16, God seeks out Hagar. So you can kind of see that Genesis 16, this story is cast in the same basic structure as Genesis chapter 3. As a way of saying this is a major lapse of faith. Um, um, a crucial mistake that they make. Believers make, make in, this, in this time. So with that said, I want to look at this kind of debacle or this, this uh, fiasco. All right? Here we get into the story. The debacle of faith. It says, verse 1, now Sarai, her name would later be changed to Sarah, Abraham's wife had, become, had born to him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. 
And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, I think there's a sense of bitterness and anger here because she blames her barrenness on the Lord. It's the Lord's fault. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Is she listening? That's the head listening to the neck in a bad way. Verse 3, so after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. It continues on in verse 4, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress, that is Sarah. And Sarai said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that I had um, that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord, Yahweh, judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power to do as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. <laughs> Here you have that, this scenario in which they want something good, something that's promised. So Sarah probably lacking patience in the Lord, or maybe she just didn't think he could do the impossible, decides that she's going to take over. Take control of the situation, as perhaps maybe a strong-willed Jewish mother would do. Well, if God's not going to make it happen, I'm going to make it happen. So she takes control of the situation, probably a little bit anger and bitter at the Lord that he's not acting, and so she tells her husband, hey, I got a plan. She comes up with the scheme, and Abraham, in a total lapse of, of leadership, courage, says, okay, I'll follow the scheme. I'll take your, your servant and I'll, you know, have a child with her. He listens to her. Now, this is one of those times when a little marital conflict would have been a good thing. For her to say, listen, Sarah, I know. And then they could work out the aftermath in couple therapy. There is a time and a place for conflict. In this particular time, this conflict, uh, this lack of conflict was a lack of courage, a cowardly, unloving thing. So he gives into it. And lo and behold, the scheme works. The servant girl by the name of Hagar, she gets pregnant. And as soon as she figures out she's pregnant, she's pregnant, she looks with contempt upon Sarah. That is, she kind of rubs her nose in it in kind of in a, a superior way. It's like, well, I have a baby, and you don't. And in response to that, Sarah's upset. She's angry, perhaps envious, jealous. And so she goes to Abraham, blames him for her scheme. Look what you did to me. So it's like, again, if I was Abraham, it's like, this was your plan, not mine. But she blames him with a false blame. And how does he respond again? With, with a complete lack of leadership. And he opens the way for injustice. Go ahead and do it to her whatever you wish. And that's what Sarah does. She abuses her wifely privilege and she abuses the servant. So much so that she has to flee, probably at risk of her own life. So... Let's just add up all the mayhem here, shall we? There, is, there are control issues. There's a lack of trust in the Lord. There is a, 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 a manipulation of a husband. There's a lack of leadership. There's a showing of contempt and arrogance. There's false blame. There's a lack of justice. And there is abuse. That kind of stuff, you know, is, is the fabric of, of Hollywood episodes like Hollywood wives. That's what's going on here. They're reaching for something God had promised, something good in their own way. Now that is not unlike 
what took place in the garden. In fact, fundamentally, it's exactly the same thing. Have you ever thought about the fact that to be like God was actually something God intended? And God created us in his image. He made us to be like him. That's Genesis 3 and Genesis 1. In other words, to be like God was a good thing. On that fateful day, Eve decided she would go after that good thing in her own way. Take the shortcut, the wrong way. Rather than trust that the Lord would fulfill his plan for us to be like him, she reached and took her own way, and everything fell apart. Because she made an idol out of being like God and took control herself to become like God. And insofar as that happened, we all fell. Same basic thing. The reaching for something that God has not at that point willed and lacked trust. Same thing. Same thing. Eve and Sarah. Same basic sin. And that teaches us something. Um, it, it sustains a, a truth that is found from the beginning to the end of the Bible, um, a, a piece of truth that is actually absolutely integral to the gospel itself, and that is this, that we cannot achieve God's blessing through reliance upon effort and engineering. Sarah wanted the blessing. I want your blessing of a son. And she was taking steps to make that happen in her own way, trusting that if God's not going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take control of this horse. And it utterly fell apart. We cannot, as God's people, bring down God's blessing by relying upon our own work. And by God's blessing, I don't, don't, don't just mean, well, the blessing of a house or a fence. I mean God's blessing of acceptance, the blessing of his pleasure, the blessing of ultimately his salvation. You cannot bring it down. Not by works of men. You see, this, this, this teaches us, even at the very beginning of the Bible, that um, we are not saved by our works. We are ultimately saved by grace and grace alone. And let me just tell you what this does. When we presume that, okay, God needs my help to accomplish this, it diminishes his power, faithfulness, and goodness, and it elevates who we think we really are, which is nothing but human pride. If you could imagine an ant looking at a bulldozer saying, can I help you move the boulder? You get kind of a picture of Sarah's work here of Yahweh's not coming through. Um, I don't have a baby. I'm getting old. Time is passing. So I, looking up at Yahweh, the ant looking at the bulldozer, let me help you out. Which completely diminishes the faithfulness, the power, and the goodness of God, not, not to mention the validity and the, um, the certainty of his promise. Now we do that too. This is, this is where faith laps in a Christian's life. To recognize that, that we cannot bring down God's blessing or his goodness or apply his blessing and his grace and his goodness by our own strength or relying upon our own means. We cannot do it. And when we do, we're doing essentially what Sarah does, and things come apart. 
So, contemporary example of how this might be so. We know, not to bring up a subject that should be brought up in church but often isn't, we know that sexual intimacy is a gift of the Lord. It's a good thing. God created it for us. And we live in a culture that's reaching for it, a good thing, in ways that completely move opposite from the way in which God in his revealed truth to us lovingly said, this is how it's to be approached. And in so doing, we're making an idol of that thing, and we lack trust in the Lord. And I don't think we have begun to see the avalanche of consequences that are going to come from that reach in our culture. And there are people in our congregation who are reaching for that by taking a sidestep. No different. Listen, do you trust that the Lord is good? Do you trust that he's faithful? Do you trust him with timing? Because if you do, you're willing to say, all right, Lord, I know that's good. You've created it, and Lord knows I want it, and that's not a bad thing. But I trust you for the timing of it. And I'm not going to reach across this fence that you said don't cross and take it. You see, this, the lesson is actually, you could, you could put anything in there. Um, the, the, the wife, and if this happens to be true of your marriage, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. The wife who so much wants her husband to be the spiritual leader in the home, whatever that looks like in your mind. Realizing that men lead different ways. Anyway, that, that's something you desire, and maybe he's not. And so, like Sarah, you decide, well, God's not making him the leader of our home like he should be. So what do you do? You come up with a scheme. All right, maybe if I talk to him enough, I'm going to give him books at Christmas time all about being a spiritual leader. And uh, I'm going to make him feel guilty because he's not at different points. And a very subtle way you are trying to bring down God's blessing in your husband's life in a way that you were never meant to. And when we do those things, it's not to say we don't pray or influence that. It doesn't rest on you. It never did. The application of God's grace to life is his work, and we do not manage it. When we try to manage God's work and do it our own way, it results in mayhem. And that's this. The family's divided. Sin's going on. And this is in the holy family. Faith should have in this time waited. That's the little parentheses there. Faith should have waited for God to come through rather than take things into its own hands. And, and, and the consequences are, 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 are generational. Because, you know, the scheme worked. Hagar did get pregnant. She did have a son. His name was Ishmael the father of all the Arab peoples. Which means a lot of the conflict in the Middle East right now can be directly tied to this choice. And that's not to devalue in any way, shape, or form the Arab people. Because they are, if I read my Bible correctly, part of the every tribe, tongue, and nation that Jesus came to die for. He values them, loves them, is redeeming them. But, you can't help but see the unfolding division and animosity because here they decided not to trust in the Lord for what he had promised. 
I think, again, very relevant. See, this is the brokenness part. And this gets in the two people you don't expect, Abraham and Sarah. So let me now switch it to the positive side. Because right next to this kind of implosion of, the, of the, uh, Abraham and Sarah and what they do to their, their servant, um, we have this surprising grace. And I think the Lord intended that when this was written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He, he intended to put side by side the failure of people you wouldn't expect and the success of someone you wouldn't expect to lay right next to each other how sin works when we refuse to trust the Lord and how grace works towards someone you don't expect. Because beginning in verse 7, the spotlight focuses entirely on Hagar. She's the one who has fled for her life. She had her own sin issue of showing contempt, but she's out in the desert and probably near the end of life. Now, two things you need to know about Sarah. Oh, Sarah. Hagar. Spotlight Hagar. This is the, the phrase. One, she's a slave. She's a piece of property. Keep that in mind. In other words, in terms of the social layering, she's at the bottom. Two, she's a foreigner. She's an Egyptian. By the way, it's kind of ironic that um, the Egyptian is a slave of a Jew, and then later on, after the history of Abraham passes, it will be the Jew who is the slave of the Egyptian. A little irony there. But she is a slave. She is a stranger, alien, not a part of the Jewish line. And third, she is a sinner. Those three things. Think about that. This is like somebody you wouldn't really take the time to spend time with. A slave, a stranger, and a sinner. The other piece that's worth noting in this chapter is not once, not once is Hagar referred to by name by either Abraham or Sarah. She's just referred to as the slave or servant or her. They don't even use her personal name to address. They just use kind of the third person generic as if you don't care, her or slave. Now keep that in mind as we read this next section. Because it should, it's just like, oh my goodness. Like, look what God's doing here. Verse 7, it says, the angel of the Lord found her. Now, it says angel of the Lord there in Genesis. The angel of the Lord just simply isn't an angel. It's a manifestation of the presence of Yahweh, which is why he is worshipped in different points. This is God's presence moving upon this slave, sinful stranger, seeking her out in the desert. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, Shur which is in the desert on the way to Egypt. So she's trying to get home. And he said, Hagar. I love that. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai and the angel of, of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress, that is return home and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered. Um, and the angel of the Lord said to her, verse 11, Behold, you are pregnant 
and shall have a son or bear a son, you should call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Reads a bit different in the King James. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord Yahweh who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, or in Hebrew, Elroy. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks or sees me, looks after me. This is a rather remarkable thing. Slave, sinner, and a stranger. Someone who is not even addressed by name by Abraham and Sarah. And God moves in on her specifically. Yahweh's presence comes to her. And he doesn't refer to her as a servant or a maidservant or as a her. He says personally, he says Hagar. She's the only one who addresses her personally by name, Hagar. Where are you going? Go back up. And then he makes this, of course, remarkable promise to her about multiplying her children. Which is a blessing. Do you know that um, in the first 16 chapters of, of Genesis, there are only a few who receive this promise? Adam is told, I will bless you and multiply your offspring. Noah is told, I will multiply and bless your offspring. Abraham, the Lord says, I will multiply and bless your offspring. And now to a slave girl, he says, I will multiply your offspring. You see that? grace in this. God moving upon a sinful slave stranger, calling her by name. You can't help but see God's grace here. Both the nature of it and the scope of it. And, and you, you, seeing the nature and the scope of it, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, you see, though this is just Jesus. I got, I got it written all over it. I mean, we find in terms of the nature of God's grace that God's grace is is the thing that initiates and pursues. She's running away. God's grace uh, pursues, it initiates, it reveals, it calls her by name, and makes this astounding promise that, you know what, I'm going to bless you in the same, with the same kind of multiplication as I blessed Abraham. Blessing. It's God's grace at work to somebody who doesn't deserve it someone who doesn't deserve it. This is what the Lord says. And the scope of it, again, he's making this promise and making himself known to a person who's an Egyptian. That just kind of hints at the fact that God's heart was not just limited to the Jewish people. All along the way, his heart was for the nations, like this woman. She can understand how, like, Jesus is kind of just the, the flesh of this. I mean, Jesus is, is God seeking after us on a pursuit, on a hunt, to seek and save that which was lost. We never sought him in and of ourselves. We were sought after. And then we were called by name. Dan, where are you going? I'm lost. And then he reveals himself to us and says, I'm real. And you know what? Not only am I real, I, I love you, I died for you, I took away your sin so that I could take you home back into the place of blessing. That's the heart of God here. That's the heart of God in the person of Jesus Christ, of God's grace pursuing people by name. And there are people in this room who know what that's like when God came upon you 
and, 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 and you felt him tap you on the shoulder and saying, Dan, what, Bill, Sally, what, what are you doing? And you were just amazed that God even took notice of you. God would even take notice of me. That God would even take notice of her. And by the way, that completely blows her away. Because one of the things that said about her son isn't all that great. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man and everybody's not going to like him. She doesn't seem to care about that part. She's just utterly blown away by one thing. That is, you saw me. You saw me in the desert, a slave, a stranger, and a sinner. You saw me and you pursued me. And she's so overwhelmed. She is and this is remarkable, too. She's the only character in the Old Testament who is given the honor of conferring upon Yahweh a name. <laughs> the only character in the Old Testament. And she's a female and a slave. And she confers upon the Lord El Roy. You saw me. You didn't just see a group. You saw me. That's awesome. You know, high school, I was a ginger. Red hair. I was funny, but not all that attractive. And I'll tell you what, there were times when you see that pretty girl and you're like, man, if she would just look at me. And if she did, you'd say to your buddies, she looked at me. Never happened, by the way. creator of the universe. All the people on the planet Earth singles his eye on a slave girl. That's you and me. Singles his eye on you. If you're here this morning and you believe, it's because he saw you. He cared. that does something to your heart, that does something to mine. <laughs> I have no claim to my salvation, quite honestly. I, I, I just know that I was pursued and God was gracious enough to open my eyes, period. He's good. But there's one little, more little piece, and I should say that this, again, supports the basic doctrine of the Bible, a basic truth of the gospel, namely that God's blessing must be initiated and conferred on the basis of divine grace alone. It's because of him. And any moment we think it's because of us, our hearts will go proud and we will lose our affection of joy, love, and worship of God. And you notice, kind of at the end of the story, God asks her to do something difficult. And here is where we see obedience added to faith. Not added to faith. We see obedience as the expression of faith. Forgive my earlier statement. The Lord says, listen, I want you to go back to the place of abuse. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, I, I believe that she was willing to do this because she did go back. By the time you get to the end of the chapter, she's back with Abraham. And it says that, that she gave birth and Ishmael became Abraham's son. She was to take, go back so that Ishmael would become a bona fide son of Abraham. 
but it was a risky move. She's a runaway slave, and so the Lord is asking her to do something that was probably very risky to her own life. But she did it. And here she, I think, acts in faith because when God made the promise to her, I will multiply your seed, implied, implied in that is that I'm going to preserve your life so that that can happen. I got you covered. Go back. And she does. Goes back. Man, that's courageous. That's courageous, like going back to prison almost. Now, hopefully things turned out better. But she does. Why? Because she trusts in the Lord with a courageous love. What a contrast. You know? Abraham and Sarah's faith wanes. And here's a slave person whose faith is courageous. Sometimes faith must wait which Abraham and Sarah should have done, and sometimes faith must act in courage. And to know the difference between the truth is a matter of Christian maturity and adequate knowledge of the scripture and leading of the Holy Spirit to know which time one must wait and when one must act. So you see, you have these two things right here in this passage side by side, brokenness and beauty, failure and grace. And I think they serve as both a warning and an encouragement to us. It's a warning to us of recognizing there are a lot of good things in life, including um, God's application of grace to our lives, special grace. It's a warning to us not to seek after those good things in a way that would distrust him and take management ourselves. Because here's a really, really graphic example of how poorly it goes so if you're in that place I just want you to hear the warning of scripture if you're in that place where it's like you know I'm going in a direction and I want something and you can fill in what that is and I'm willing to go against what God has lovingly revealed for me to do in order to get it you're in a very very uh, precarious place you've probably made an idol out of that thing and you're willing to do whatever you can to get it. And you know, one of the things that I've found is a common denominator of all idolatry is that it puts us in charge. We manage to get it. That's what idolatry does. Rather than, all right, Lord, I do want that thing. I'm going to be honest with you, whatever that is. And, and I know it's good in scripture, but I know you don't want me to, to go against what you have lovingly revealed for me to have it. And so I'm going to trust you. Or maybe you've totally screwed up. Maybe you've done what... Abraham and Sarah have done. You're at the end of that. Wow, I took some wrong turns. I tried to, to get that thing without trusting the Lord. And man, I, I, I'm reaping the whirlwind. Well, you know what? God still loved Abraham and Sarah. And he still has good designs for them. He brings them a child. And of course, Abraham will go on to show a great display of love and faith. And he will offer Isaac on the, on the altar. So it doesn't mean it's over. Um, God is still good. God is still in it. Or maybe we're here this morning and, and just need to be reminded that God sees you. No matter how far you've run, <laughs> whether you're on the bottom of the social class, there are classes, they're just covered over in our culture. Um, maybe you are the stranger. He sees you. And maybe this morning you'll be one of those people who's like, I do, I see that he sees me. And you'll acknowledge his grace and recognize that, you know, he has offered out to everyone who will listen. He knows that he sees them. He says, come to me. 
and to bow the heart the creature bowing before the creator recognizing that we can't save ourselves but he has and can and to receive because this is the heart of god a god of grace a god who pursues us he hunts us down he pursues us he reveals himself to us he calls us by name and he's the one who takes us home i i want you to respond as the lord would have you respond this morning to this word this is his word to you a word of warning of grace what does the holy spirit want you to do with one or both of those things this morning what is he calling you to do in your heart or your action or your life seems pretty clear to me this is both a warning and encouragement let me pray for you father i am grateful for your word and i'm grateful for the warnings that you provide for us to help us lovingly make the proper choice of faith. We're also grateful, Lord, for the stories of your amazing grace. And I want to pray for individuals in this room who know specifically that the Spirit of God is speaking to them this morning. They're maybe in a place where they have either made decisions or are on the brink of making decisions that violate their confidence in you. And I pray that they'd know this is their, your word for them. You're speaking personally to them right here, right now. For others of us, Lord, I just, I pray that you would grant us the heart to know just the weight and the measure and the wonder of your grace that we would never forget that you're the one who sought us. You're the one who called us by name. You're the one who revealed yourself to us and gave us the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we always and never forget that that is the beginning, middle, and end of our lives. Thank you, Father, for your time through your word this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and join us. Let's sing. Indeed, Lord, thank you for a great message. was lost but now I'm